Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. The idea of the library is to help us all learn from these mistakes and stop making them so often. There are also now libraries of mistakes in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in Pune, in India. Visit librarymistakes.com to find out more. The library is owned by Didasco, a financial educational charity based in Scotland, which also runs an online course called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, and its in-person variety, which we hold in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the courses, see the link to Didasco in the podcast show notes. I am delighted today to welcome Brendan Blue. Brendan is a federal prosecutor and served as special counsel for private equity at the U.S. Department of Justice. He began his legal career in the department's National Security Division, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism. But he's moved from counterterrorism to writing a book on private equity. Brendan, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's a wonderful book. Well, it's a kind of worrying book and a wonderful book as well. Uh, You have a summary of private equity, and I thought I'd begin by reading an extract, and people will get an idea why it's a subset of capitalism and why it might be slightly different from the -the run-of-the-mill or what else is going on uh, everywhere else. The skeptic might say, for better or worse, private equity is just an extreme form of free market capitalism. This is where you begin. The debt that private equity forces on the companies and the short deadlines it demands for profits force sluggish companies to reform and demand the survival of the fittest. Or so the argument goes. As the chapters that follow show, private equity firms do not offer simply an extreme version of capitalism, but rather something much darker, a twinning of big business and big government that finds profits by creating and exploiting legal legal gaps in obscure government programs. When forced to actually run business, private equity firms often show surprising ineptitude. Their executives' talents often come not from operating the levers of business, but from the levers of power, securing financing, identifying regulatory holes, and creating them where they don't exist. Capitalists and socialists and everyone in between should all be united in their concern over this business philosophy. So that's, uh, that's the manifesto. That's how you set it out, and you go on to prove it in the, uh, in the rest of the book. So there's a passion behind that, I think. Where does that passion come from and, and, and why this focus for you anyway, personally, on, on private equity? Well, I'm flattered that you chose that section because I think it does summarize what I've tried to say about private equity, which is that this is not an extreme form of capitalism, but rather a deviation from it. And I should say, of course, at the outset that I'm speaking purely personally and not necessarily on behalf of my employer. So how did I get interested? Um The short answer is, you know, I was working at the Department of Justice in the United States looking at deals as they came in. When big companies want to buy each other, they need to file documents with uh, the DOJ and with the FTC. And I was looking at these documents and it seemed like every company that I saw was getting bought by firms that I had never heard of, you know, probably familiar to, to your listeners, but not to me, you know, Carlisle, KKR, Blackstone and so forth. Um, and I wanted to try to understand what was going on here. And that led me down the path to learning about private equity and just how it was transforming, you know, not just America, but the whole world. Well, we're not going to be able to summarize all of the extractive uh, policies that private equity uses, but I'm going to 
give us another line from the book and do your best to give us a little summary of what all of these things mean and why people should be interested in, and, uh, and the impact they're having on society. But we'll broaden it out beyond this. So you say, uh, instead of offering better management, firms often use a range of tactics described below. Leasebacks, dividend recaps, strategic bankruptcies, roll-ups, forced partnerships, tax avoidance and layoffs to extract money from businesses. Now, I know answering that question is really going to take you 45 minutes. But can you give us some idea of these, what you call extractive business practices and, the, and perhaps a little bit of the impact, maybe a few samples of the impacts they have on on everyday, well, I was going to say everyday Americans, but actually it's, uh, it's a global phenomenon, right? Well, I, I won't give the 45-minute answer. I'll try to keep it to the you know minute and a half or two-minute answer. So um, it's interesting, you know, private equity firms generally are trying to make a profit pretty quickly, you know, five, seven years for owning a company. Now that might not, that might be an enormously long time for a hedge fund, but for somebody that's, you know, owning a business, that's not, uh, that's not a long horizon. So how do you make money? Um, there are a lot of different tactics. You know, you mentioned sale leasebacks. This is the idea that you would require a portfolio company to sell its assets, you know, the, the store that a retail chain owns or the supplies that a medical business might own and then lease it back to itself. You know, that generates a hit, quick hit of cash, but it means that the company that the private equity firm has bought now has this sort of unending obligation to pay for things that it used to have for itself. Um, there are things like transaction fees and management fees. Um, transaction fees are fees that the portfolio company will pay um, when they do a deal like a sale leaseback or management fee, which is a fee that they pay for the privilege of being owned by the private equity firm. Um, these are tools that private equity firms can use to make money in the short term, often at the expense of not just their uh, portfolio companies, but even sometimes their own um, investors. Um, it's a way that works well for, you know, the Blackstones and Carlisles of the world, but may not necessarily work well um, for the co- portfolio companies, for their customers, or for their employees. And there is another consequence, because you cite here some of the statistics for bankruptcy. Roughly one in five large companies acquired through leveraged buyouts go bankrupt in a decade. This is vastly more than the roughly 2% of comparable companies not acquired by private equities that do so. Well, I'm flattered by the close reading you gave the book, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a startling statistic to think that private equity firms are about 10 times as likely to have their portfolio companies go bankrupt as, um, as comparable companies that aren't so owned. I think it's useful to ask why that is. You know, sometimes it's that private equity firms really t- bite off more than they can chew and the private, you know, the portfolio company goes bankrupt. Other times, I think private equity firms, and here I speak as a U.S. lawyer, so I can't speak to the international angle, um, I think have proven enormously adept at um, using the bankruptcy code to their advantage. So, for instance, um, by both owning the company and lending the company money, they can do this sort of two-step move of selling the company from itself to itself, and in the process sort of slough off pension and retirement obligations onto quasi-government agencies. So it's it's a case where, you know, sometimes these bankruptcies, you know, go poorly for the private equity firm, but sometimes the bankruptcies actually go really well. And the people that suffer are just the companies and their employees. Now, I can see that some people listening will think, oh, this is some sort of financial shell game. It's nothing really of interest to me, but let's, let's get a bit more direct on impact on, on the average citizen. And I better give the full source for this statistic because it's quite a statistic. 
In 2021, researchers at the University of Chicago in Pennsylvania, as well as New York University, compared the short-term mortality of residents in homes owned by private equity firms with that of residents in other facilities. What they found was astounding. Private equity ownership was associated with over 20,000 premature deaths in nursing homes over 12 years. Now, I imagine that is disputed by uh, certain people. But anyway, uh, that's an example. And, and your book is full of examples comparing a private equity run company with still privately run companies and the difference in outcomes. And a lot of these now are getting into what may have been historically uh, public public service, uh, public services. So private equity is kind of eating into public services. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to get in too, too in the weeds here. You know, it's two lawyers talking to each other. That's always a risk. But I think um, it's worth talking about that nursing home example to try to explain why outcomes often go so badly um, in private equity companies. So, um, you know, you mentioned that this academic study found that, you know, private equity ownership was responsible for an estimated 20,000 premature deaths in nursing homes. Why would that happen? Um, well, if you look at specific examples, like when Carlisle bought up the nursing home chain HCR Manor Care, um, they executed a lot of the tactics that we were just talking about, about a sale leaseback and transaction and management fees and so forth. They, you know, cut staffing, um, health code complaints rose at the at the nursing home chain, and eventually at least one resident died. Um, but when the family member of the resident tried to sue for wrongful death, Carlisle was able to get the case against it dismissed by saying that they were not the technical owners of the nursing home chain. Rather, they were just merely financial advisors to a series of limited partnerships who owned the nursing home chain through several shell companies. And that description was complicated enough that it was able to get the case against itself dismissed and ultimately was never held directly responsible for the death of this nursing home chain. And so I, I use that example to try to say kind of the, the legal magic trick of private equity firms is that they're able to have operational control over the companies they buy, but often or rarely are held responsible for the consequences of their actions. And once you have that, you can have a lot of bad consequences. Yeah, indeed. And there's another one, which I hadn't known about. I thought I knew a little bit about private equity, but reading your book, I hadn't realized this new relationship with insurance and that private equity is buying insurance companies. So this now has implications for people who have policies with those insurance companies. Do you want to explain a little bit about what's attracting the private equity business to insurance? I think we can probably guess, but maybe you could spell that out and what the possible implications of this might be for people who who hold those policies. Yeah. So private equity firms obviously need money to buy up companies. Um, you know, traditionally that's come from pension funds and so forth. Uh, but as they've sort of exhausted those or tapped those resources, they're looking to new new fields um, to potentially mix metaphors here. Um, one of those is uh, the insurance industry. So they have been buying up life insurance in companies with the intention of using the premiums that you pay every month or every quarter and investing that in their own projects. Um, so, you know, Apollo has bought Athene. I believe KKR bought General Atlantic. There have been a number of other large acquisitions. And what's really interesting is once you start reading the trade press about this in the insurance industry, um, as alleged, these firms have been moving 
um, these plans to offshore affiliates in Bermuda, which have lower capital requirements. The result is wit of which is that they have to hold on to less money and can use more money to invest in their various projects. Well, we've seen this sort of crisis, you know, or sort of potential basis for a crisis happen before. But what's new here is that if a insurance company becomes insolvent, the person on the hook isn't necessarily going to be the private equity owner of the insurance company. Rather, it's going to be, at least in the United States, what are called guarantee corporations, which are essentially sort of these quasi-government insurers for insurers that are paid for by the premiums of other more responsible companies. So what happens is if a private equity firm buys an insurance company and they invest in risky schemes and the insurance company goes insolvent, at least potentially, the, the private equity firm can walk away while it's other more responsible companies and other more responsible um, retirees and savers that are going to have to pay here. The public cost is also there in the pensions because you mentioned several instances as well where it's the, um, it's, the, uh, it's the public who end up picking up the cost of the pensions in some of these deals as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's really interesting, we sort of alluded to this story about using strategic bankruptcies. Um, Private equity firms have gotten really adept at using the bankruptcy process to um, slough off pension obligations here in the United States onto something that's called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And I'll give an example really quickly. Um, When Sun Capital bought Friendly's, which is a diner chain, um, they eventually pushed it into bankruptcy. But they weren't just Friendly's large owner; they were also its largest lender. And you know, if you're familiar with the bankruptcy process, it's a little bit like flipping an hourglass, where the debtors become typically become the owners of the company. Um, well, here, because it was both the owner and the debtor, Sun Capital was able to sell Friendly's from itself to itself. And in the process, they did this complicated maneuver that allowed them to abandon the pension obligations and push it on to the PBGC. And that's a tactic that has been tried, according to one Harvard study, um, at least 50 times over a 15-year period. Well, so rights, that was the thing I didn't expect to find in your book. Uh, And the rights to law, which I didn't really think was going to be here. And that is about arbitration and the need for certain customers of private equity to, if you like, waive legal rights in lieu of an arbitration process. Uh, I hadn't come across this before. Can you explain what it means and what it's meant to many of the customers for, for, for private equity and how it relates to the justice system? Because I am a lapsed lawyer, as you said, and the I thought it was a fascinating point that this leads to a lack of precedent in these cases, which is clearly very beneficial if you're the defendant. Yeah. So, you know, just to set a baseline, you know, in in if you're used to watching courtroom dramas on TV, if somebody's wronged, you would sue them and you'd be in front of a judge and make your argument and they decide, you know, whether you're right or wrong. Um, increasingly, that is not how the legal system in the United States works. Um, because companies have been able to... Um, use what are called mandatory arbitration agreements. If you have a disagreement with a company, oftentimes you cannot sue them or cannot sue them successfully. Instead, you are sent to arbitration where you have um, a more informal process, fewer tools for collecting evidence. And ultimately the arbitrator, the person making the decision will typically be paid for by the company itself. Um, Private equity firms have really been enamored of arbitration agreements and have been very aggressive at pushing it, for instance, in the nursing home industry, um, in the payday lending industry. 
one of the really interesting cases that I saw was um, where uh, Mariner Finance, which was an installment or payday lender owned by the private equity firm Warburg Pincus, um, it would literally send checks to people that you would cash. And then once you cashed it, you were then on the hook for paying it back with a very high interest rate. But as part of you know, literally signing the check or agreeing to, the, to take the money, you had to agree to mandatory arbitration if you had a problem with Mariner Finance. But Mariner Finance what, didn't have to use arbitration if they had a problem with you. Instead, they could use the state or federal court process and in so doing, you know, potentially use the machinery of the judicial system to, for instance, garnish your wages and so forth. And so we've sort of set up a, a pretty extraordinary you know, two-tiered system where in some, at least for some companies, if you have a problem, you have to go through their arbitration process. You can't develop precedent. You might have, you might struggle to develop evidence, but if they've got a problem with you, they can use sort of the full tools of the justice system. It's an overmighty citizen. I think we've had this problem throughout history with overmighty, overmighty citizens. And for those of you who think this is just going to be a catalog of the actions of the overmighty citizen, at the end, Brendan does come up with some remedies. So we'll get to that at the end. But uh, as I said, it's getting into sorts of public services, something we're maybe not so familiar with in the United Kingdom, but it's nursing, prisons, the fire department. That was a shock to know that the fire department can be owned by by private equity in some of the examples. But the one I wanted to dwell on was education, because clearly it has a huge impact on, on, on the next generation and the generation after. I was going to read a rather large extract because it just struck me as being something really quite Peculiar and maybe not familiar to people outside the US, and it's the case of Ashford University, which just jumps off the page. Ashford began as the Franciscan University of the Prairies, a small college run by nuns whose campus in Clinton, Iowa, sat just off the Mississippi River. In 2005, the private equity firm Morgan, uh, Warburg Pincus funded a handful of executives from the University of Phoenix to buy the school, sever its affiliation with the Catholic Church, and repurpose it as a for-profit college, which they renamed Ashford University. By doing so, the executives inherited the college's accreditation, which gave it access to federal financial aid. With accreditation, Ashford's new leaders were able to explode enrollment. When they bought the college in 2005, it had just 332 students. Six years later, it had over 83,000, almost all of them, enrolled in the school's online program. And I think you go on later to say that about 80% or more of all the revenue from this college came from government grants. I mean, that's got to be the most extreme example, surely. Tell me that's the most extreme example of uh, how this is done, but uh, it's it's clearly got into education as well. It might be the most extreme, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, For-profit education has been um, enormously attractive to private equity firms. And, you know, one of the things that always sort of surprised me in researching about private equity is that they're often drawn to industries that um, target not rich people, but rather working class or poor people, um, which always seemed a little surprising to me. You'd think if you're in the business of making money, you'd go where the money is. Um, But I think oftentimes they are attracted to businesses where... Um, you have a working class customer base that really doesn't have an alternative, you know, um, uh, and it allows you to raise price or cut services uh, in pretty extreme ways. You know, just thinking about Ashford University, uh, you know, I think they, as you mentioned, they had about 80,000 students at one point. Um, I think over 1,700 recruiters, people working to bring in new students to Ashford. Uh, But the entire system had just one 
employee devoted to uh, career development for students. So one one person working for 80,000 students is pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, it's interesting because one of the challenges that we've got is that private equity has gotten very interested in for-profit colleges in the United States, but for-profit colleges often go bankrupt. And there are some pretty wild stories about these schools, essentially, you know, private equity owned schools going bankrupt with little or even no notice to students who are left, you know, heavily indebted um, with credits that may or may not transfer and with little idea about what to do next. And then we get to the elephant in the room, the $896 million elephant in the room. uh, And that comes in a chapter called the industry's strongest advocates, private equity and Congress. Let me read the statistics. Since 1990, the industry has given over 896 million US dollars to congressional candidates and members. The distribution of money has been bipartisan, with Republicans getting more, but just slightly more than the Democrats. Uh, it does seem like a lot of money, even now. Uh, you track them through the rest of the chapter, its potential influence uh, in Congress. Uh, Weren't there some attempts to limit this? Have there ever been attempts to to limit this? Not just in relation to private equity, but more generally. Uh, And what has happened to those efforts to uh, sort of restrict, constrain, control campaign finance? Well, there have been various efforts to, you know, place campaign finance limits uh, on elections and and electioneering in the United States, uh, largely without success since the Supreme Court decision of Citizens United. Um, it's been very hard to limit any sort of, you know, place meaningful limits on outside spending um, for uh, campaign and related issues. The interesting thing is, I, I think private equity has spent a lot of money on um, on individual congressional elected officials and candidates, as you said, over $840 million. Um, but it's more than just the money. I think that they also have a really deep bench of people from government working on their behalf. You know, if you just sort of look at who they employ, it includes, um, you know, former secretaries of the Treasury, Defense, State, um, a former vice president, two former speakers of the House, former senators, chair people of the FCC, SEC, and so forth. Um and with that kind of bench, you're really able to get access in a way that I think very few industries um, have been able to. And you see the results, you know, whether you're talking about protecting sort of favored tax benefits or working on specific issues like, um, you know, protecting surprise medical billing, for instance. And uh, now on to the more positive bits. Uh, there is signs that things are beginning to change. We actually had Denise Hearn on here not too long ago talking about uh, things changing at the FTC and perhaps the DOJ. So that relates to uh, the subject of roll-ups and greater concentration of power, but other things as well. So uh, give us the evidence that in the last year or two that something's changing and perhaps maybe even on a bipartisan basis. Is that right? Yeah, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about this or overly optimistic, but I really do believe that there's a lot that can be done to um, sort of fix the private equity business model. And there are a lot of things that are being done. Um, you know, Denise Hearn, who, who co-authored a, a wonderful book called The Myth of Capitalism, I think probably has some uh, good insights into what, you know, my my agency and the FTC have been up to. Um, you know, I'd point to, you know, things like the, this is a little in the weeds here, but the revised mer- horizontal merger guidelines, um, work on interlocking directorates and so forth. But speaking a little bit more broadly, um, 
I think where we have seen the most success on private equity has generally been when concerned people focus on specific issues or specific industries. Um, for instance, in the United States, it, private equity has been really active in buying up prison phone companies um, and then raising rates so that it can cost, you know, in some places, you know, $20 for a 15 minute phone call to your loved ones. Um, activists have been enormously successful in passing local, state, and now federal legislation to cap prison phone call costs. Um, and, and really, I think, has, has made the business much less attractive to private equity. Similarly, folks have been really effective, you know, to go back, we were talking earlier about nursing homes. Um, there's been really interesting advocacy work to push rulemaking at the Department of Health and Human Services to establish minimum staffing criteria at nursing homes so that you know, each resident has enough time with a given nurse or, or expert, um, you know, to know that they're cared for. So I, again, you know, these are the, the challenges posed by private equity are really substantial. But I think when people are focused on specific issues, we've seen real success. And uh, in terms of the business that I'm in and the people who listen to this, a lot of people are in the investment business. And one of these sort of so-called conundrums is the lack of productivity growth and, and what on earth is happening to productivity and why it's done. Now, there are, are a thousand answers to that question, but maybe one of them is in your book because you point out uh, private equity firms uh, are extracting money from companies instead of putting it into productive investment, infrastructure, employment, research, and marketing. So I wonder, do you know if there's any specific research on looking at the rate of reinvestment by private equity in terms of, if you like, capital expenditure, which is a function or one of the fun one of the products that would lead us to to higher higher uh, productivity. I wonder if, if private equity is playing not the only role, but part of a role in our in our per productivity and investment. Yeah, you know, I don't think that there's good research yet on the relationship between private equity and capital expenditures, because these are private companies, it's hard to get good, good figures on this. I do think that there's been interesting reporting on, you know, just how private equity ownership has resulted in, um, you know, financialization of the entire economy, and particular sort of wealth development for, you know, high-end executives and so forth. You know, the idea that I think one study says that private equity, ex there are more private equity executives making $100 million a year than every other financial professional and every other professional athlete combined. Um, so I think that there's a story there. I, I think, I hope that more research is done on on your really important point about the relationship between private equity and and productivity, I think just looking at the incentives that we've created for private equity suggests that there probably is a relationship in that it's very easy for private equity, you know, private equity firms to make money in a few short years, often at the expense of their portfolio companies. And it almost looks like really just a transfer of wealth from the operating company to the financial firm. When you see things like that, it suggests that private equity is sort of hastening a sort of financialization in our economy, which may be a drag on productivity. Uh, there's a long list here of things that can be done. And to get through all of those things, you need to buy the book because there's a lot more in it than Brendan and I have discussed in just the last few minutes. But the one that jumped off the page to me was that and I wasn't aware of this, is that uh, some people have sued board members of private equity owned companies for breaches of fiduciary duty. Uh, board members typically owe duties of care and loyalty to the companies they oversee, and yet many board members are personally divided between the companies they lead and the private equity firms 
they often work for. I think in the book you cite one example anyway, or maybe there's more of where that has been attempted. Uh, you know, the, the the law of America is always growing. It's always expanding. Uh, is this something where you think in five, six years from now is something that will be uh, being pursued more aggressively? And is it, I've got, uh, has it got possibilities of, uh, of success in this area? I can tell you're a lapsed lawyer because you immediately get in the most in the weeds uh, example, but it's one that really excites me because I think there's a real possibility here. So just to lay the lay the foundation, you know, board directors owe a fiduciary obligation to the companies that they serve. Um, often private equity firms, when they buy a company, install directors that are loyal to them. And in a sense, the the directors then have a dual loyalty, in fact, if not in law, a, lo- a legal loyalty to the a portfolio company, and then a de facto or personal loyalty to the private equity firm. Sometimes these things conflict. And there was a really interesting case um, in the Southern District of New York that uh, survived, I believe, um, a motion for summary judgment, um, saying that, in fact, there was a conflict happening. The minute that happened, or not that's that's an exaggeration, but not much of one. I think within days of that summary of that order, um, the parties settled, suggesting that private equity firms do see this as as a real threat to you know the potential business model here. Okay, well let's uh, let's see how that one grows and grows. Uh, before we finish, the subject of the day I think across financial markets now is the private debt. And the growth in that, and it seems to be growing incredibly quickly. And obviously, it's the same firms. In many cases, it's the same firms involved in private equity and the private debt. What do you see going on there that feeds into the, the story in the book? I mean, the book's just published, but I suspect even since you send it off to the publisher, there's been some developments in the, in the, the, the control of private debt, which is important for this story. Yeah. So I think it's two things. One is, you know, just a general story that, you know, private equity firms are really no longer in the primary business of private equity. You know, you look at the biggest ones, they are investing, you know, not just in hedge fund operations, but, you know, private credit is making up a big part, in some cases, a majority of their business. So it's interesting as in the United States, as investment banks, you know, all converted into bank holding companies and became very highly regulated. I think a lot of the financial action or innovation has moved to private equity firms. I think conversely, there is a risk going on here, which is almost by definition that the private credit markets are less regulated than the public ones. Um, and you've got a situation here where you've got institutions that are less regulated than and less transparent than the ones that used to be leading this. And they're getting active in an industry where there is more opacity, less understanding of you know how reliable credit ratings are, you know, um, um, you know, whether you know originators are being responsible in sort of representing the quality of these uh, of this private debt, um, you know, as some you know people that are more expert than I are concerned about this about this market, and so I'd be interested to see what happens over the next few years. Well, I've read lots of books by ex-members of the DOJ or uh, the uh, Justice Department about what they were up to. It's very rare, at least in my experience, very rare to have a a, a, pra- a practitioner currently employed. Uh, writing a book, writing a book like this, was it very difficult to get your employer to? Uh, to- <laughs> uh, it's funny that you ask. Strangely, not. Uh, I think I, regardless of the subject, I think um, my bosses at at the Justice Department are are generally supportive of 
of folks sort of um, branching out sort of in academic writing interests. And I'm hoping that this can be a bit of a, bit of a, uh, a test pilot, you know, test project for others to do something similar, you know, whether they agree with me or not, whether they're writing about this issue or not. Um, we need folks that are passionate about stuff in government. And I hope that this, this encourages people to join. Well, I recommend everyone to read it. It's a very striking cover. You can't really miss it. It's got skull and crossbones on the front cover. So fitting in with the word uh, plunder and the dramatic title, Private Equities Plan to Pillage America. Brendan, thank you very much. Uh, good luck with everything that goes on from here. And good luck with the book. And thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply go to libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform.